Uh, first of all, let me say to uh, the students that are back uh, after having been gone uh, for the summer, it's great to have you guys back. And if you're brand new, a uh, brand new student uh, here, a freshman or transfer or whatever the case may be, uh, welcome to Matthias. My name's Mark, and uh, it's an honor to have you guys here. Um, I don't, I'm not sure who uh, created or came up or, uh, with the tortilla chip and the salsa, um, but either way, I think it was Jesus, um, because it is insanely miraculous, isn't it? And some of you guys know that every, every Wednesday I, I eat uh, at El Magwe, and there's something in particular that happens at El Magwe with my innards that nowhere, that nowhere else can replicate. When the cheese sauce hits my esophagus, it feels as though the Lord is touching it. You know, it's just like, have you guys had, who, had, who here has not had the El Magwe cheese sauce before? Has anyone here not had it? Okay. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, after we're all said and done here, you guys are going to come up. We're going to pray for you guys, and we're going to go to lunch together there tomorrow. But Brandon and I, um, Brandon and I were having lunch there today with a couple church planters, and uh, they planted a church on the other side of the river, and we've had a chance to speak in and encourage them. They're about seven or eight months old as a church. And as I was sitting there eating chips and salsa, enjoying my fajitas, um, it was, it, it dawned on me again that today, uh, this Wednesday, is our nine-year anniversary as a church. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And um, thank you for that overwhelming applause. So then, um, <laughs> uh, and so um, I actually called uh, who was our then archivist, and I thought for sure that I could, um, that he had some picture to kind of, you know, help us remember. And sure enough, we took a picture three days before the launch of our church with everyone who was in the church at the time on the steps of where we met in our first location, St. Charles High School. So here was Matthias's Lot Church in August of 2005. That was us right there, okay? Pretty crazy, isn't it? Um, my blue shirt is somewhat crazy as well, up there on the top. Uh, you'll see my wife uh, to the right. We uh, had no kids at that point. John and Lori Locke, some of you guys know, uh, over there uh, next to her. Kellen Locke is up there on the uh, top left. He's still here. He's uh, flexing as usual. Um, some of you guys know the Stichter family. He's next to him. And uh, lower left is Pastor Jeff and his wife. And then, like, one of our only kids. Like, when we planted, like, people not be having babies yet, Okay. And it so it just so happened that I also found a picture of Luke, which is the Brzezinski child. This is the picture of Luke, like when he was, now he's like 10, okay? And, uh, and there he was, you know, still in diapers. Don't you wonder what's going through a kid's mind? Like, what is he thinking right there, right? Like, if I can just build these blocks, then it will all... Um... <laughs> we didn't have any kids then, we do now. We have like, we have like 85 kids now all over the place, kids everywhere. And uh, one of the things I love and appreciate about children the most is there is this, this innocence, this naivety, this, hey, whatever you say goes at least for a season in their life. Um, Jesus calls it faith like a child. Uh, that I think for many of us, because we've gotten jaded or disillusioned or uh, angry, we've like complicated our faith so much. Some of you guys walk in here with such a complicated faith, like your last relationship, you know? It's like more complicated than, you know, the hardest arithmetic problem, right? So much drama, so much whatever. And, and if your faith is so insanely complicated, it's tough to see why there would be any semblance of joy in it. Uh, I, for one, want to be tonight reminded of the childlike faith. Um... I'm wondering what it would look like tonight if all of us in what seems to be like a weird random text in Exodus, if all of us tonight could just recapture a little bit of that just kid who doesn't care. Uh, that's what I've learned about my boys is they don't care about anything. I mean, they'll do whatever. They're not thinking about all the dynamics of the relationships involved. They literally just enjoy and laugh and have fun. And so tonight, I want to have fun, I want to enjoy it, I want to laugh, and I want to pray that God would give us maybe a, a faith like a child that you haven't had for a long, long, long time, or never had. So in light of our nine-year anniversary and um, the things that are on my heart tonight, I just, 
I just want to pray that God would focus us and that he take us on a journey. Is that cool? You guys with me? Okay. I love you guys so much. I want you to know that everything that I'll communicate tonight, I pray, are his words. But please know that, that the motive of my heart is love for you. We want to shepherd you guys the best that we absolutely can. This is not a worship gathering uh, that's, you know, some side ministry. This is a church that's seeking to shepherd people toward the, the person of Christ. All right? So let's pray. And then we're going to have some fun rock and roll. Lord, um, I would ask, like only you can, that you would give us uh, a childlike, almost naive to all of our um, uh, complications kind of faith. I pray for my friends in here who are in a crisis in their faith, who have ran um, far away, who are distant, who have no walk or relationship with you right now. I pray tonight that things completely flip on their head. And that you would bring them back to what it is that you're doing in their heart and their life and even in our world. I pray tonight that you'll um, give me focus, that you'll give me the words that you desire me to say, and that you'll take us all uh, tonight, God, on a beautiful journey through your scripture. In your great and holy name and all God's people said, amen. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. If you are just joining us and if you're brand new, uh, we study the Bible verse by verse uh, on book. And right now we are in the book of Exodus. It's been beautiful. We've seen the redemption of God's people from the uh, slavery-ridden hands of the Egyptians. In the last couple weeks, if you've been joining us, we've looked at some weird lists of rules and laws and regulations and just kind of strange oddities, okay? Uh, Maybe some of you guys got the tattoo last week that sorcerers need to die. Uh, That was one of the the laws, okay? If you're a sorceress, you die. Um, Tonight, I think we actually have one better. Okay, so we're actually going to start where we're going to end. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. Check this out. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, right? Okay. Um, that, would make it, that would make an amazing tattoo, wouldn't it? Like you get Exodus 23, 19 on your, you know, on your massive bicep. Hey, what's that? Oh, it just says you're not to boil, uh, you know, your sacrifice in mother's milk of a goat kind of thing. Okay, right on. You know, be an interesting thing, right? So that's where we're, that's where we're going, But let's start and take this journey and see what the Lord has for us here in verse 1. Here we go. You shall not spread, he begins, a false report. Look, I've I've said over and over and over, starting at the Ten Commandments, all throughout this list of rules and laws, there's 30 plus of them, that God is providing Christmas presents to his people, gifts, gifts. Even the Ten Commandments in and of themselves are precious gifts. Do not seal, do not murder. All these things are God's gifts helping his people, his covenant community, show them the best way to live. And so here is no different. Okay, He begins this uh, rhetoric, this dialogue by saying, look, you shall not bear false witness. And I'm pretty sure that we're pros at sharing false witness. We're great gossipers. Um, We have been talked about and false reports shared about us, and we have certainly played a part in the sharing of that about others. So I thought I made a, uh, would make a little rule of thumb for us. Here's something to live by. If you don't know, don't talk, okay? That's a good rule, right? Because what happens is we love to get involved in a situation despite not knowing any of the players, any of the circumstances. We start assuming things, and we just ultimately enjoy making up a story. Why? Because we love to be the bearers of news. Come on. When you're, when, like some of you guys were the first uh, people to tell someone else that LeBron went to Cleveland, okay? Wasn't that like the most, like it was, you, it brought you so much joy to share that news. Dude, did you hear LeBron went to Cleveland? And if the people said, no, I hadn't heard that yet, doesn't it bring you tremendous joy, right? And, and, some, and that may be a bad example for some of you. So for others of you, like maybe if there was a ballerina that got traded to a different company or something and you shared that. I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like give the female equivalent. Or like, like if someone won the VMA, you know, that you had been hoping on and, you know, you got to share that news. I don't know. Whatever, okay? We love to be the bearer of that. So here's the rule of thumb. If you don't know, don't talk or post or write or prod. There's a, there's a difference of asking questions because you care and prodding because you want to be the bearer of news. You know the difference. Imagine if we just embrace this kind of teaching. If I don't know, I'm not going to talk. I have no interest. I I don't want to stir the pot. Uh, If you've been here for one day, you know that we hate gossip. Hate it. Okay, I don't say the H word very often, 
but I really, really hate gossip. And here's why. If gossip runs the show in any church in the nation of Israel, what happens is it tells everyone else that we're better off like the Truman Show. We're better off that everyone, you know, lives in their perfect house, walks down their perfect concrete steps, smiles at all the other perfect neighbors, shakes some hands, kisses some babies, and then everyone just says the Christian F word over and over and over. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. My kids are fine. My heart's fine. How's your relationship with the Lord? It's fine too. Everything is just fine all the time. This is the kind of community I grew up in. I would shake people's hands, and they had the stinking same smile on their face Sunday after Sunday. Like, do you ever take that off? Does it ever erase? Are you ever not happy? And the answer is yes, of course. But they believed that they had to portray something that they weren't because if they didn't, then people would gossip about them. And it was worse to be gossiped about than to be a fake. And so everyone just trained each other, hey, listen, just, you know, listen, just Put on a show, no one's going to talk bad about you, and then in the end, we'll all go home and live wretched lives. We hate gossip here because we love transparency. We long for people to be able to raise their hand and say, I have a porn problem, someone help me. My marriage is in duress, someone step in please and pray with me. And that won't happen, that can't happen if gossip runs the show. So as uh, the the words of the late Chris Farley, R.I.P., Please shut your big yappers, gossipers, in this room, okay? For those of you guys that don't know who Chris Farley is, come up for prayer like the folks who haven't had the cheese sauce. Um, the other piece, the other piece to this, and this is kind of put, putting some definition on gossip. If you do know, and it is not encouraging, only discuss those situations with the persons it involve. So if you do know some info, there is zero need to talk about it with anyone else unless it encourages them. That's what gossip is. Anything about someone else that it could be even potentially seen in a negative light. So let's just all uh, say this together. I will kill gossipers. Thank you. Here we go. Verse 2. Mom, my pastor said I can murder people. Yes, I did. Verse 2. Here we go. Actually, in verse 1, you shall not, I love this, You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Those of you who have siblings know exactly what this is, right? Come on, there was a time when, when like, you got with your brother or sister, and, you know, you wanted to single out your other sibling. You're like, hey, listen, let's pin this mess on them, right? And so you, like, made up this whole concocted story. You went to your mom and dad, you laid it down, got them in trouble, high-fiving behind the scenes, right? This, this happened, right? This is exactly what he's saying. Do not join, join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness, a false witness. Verse 2 I'm obsessed with. You shall not fall in with the who? The who? The many to do evil. Uh, nice Sunday school Christian literature calls this peer pressure, and unfortunately, because of the word peer pressure and us growing up in that kind of mentality, whenever we hear about peer pressure, we instantly get, get like turned off and shut down. So let's not talk about peer pressure. Let's just talk about falling in with evil. First of all, don't you love that it, it says falling in and not like, and then I arose with evil in my hot air balloon? Like, that, that's not what happens with evil. You, you fall in, like it's, it, it goes down, okay? And so I want to look at a few ways here of, of why we struggle falling in with evil, going with the many, being attributed with the crowd. The first is this. Next slide. It is easier to fall in than to stand. And here's why. Standing requires courage for the long haul, often by yourself. Listen, anyone can make a stand for an hour or a little conversation or a half of a party. I mean, anyone can make a stand. It's not, it's not difficult. Courage, the longevity, all of those things, are. it's way, way, way easier just to indulge than it is to stand. And some of you guys know exactly what this looks like. Maybe you've been sitting at your lunch table, okay? Had lunch at Linwood on Linwood's campus yesterday in the cafe. I don't know what the, what the, like what all the talk is. I actually love that place. 
It's all you can eat. It's all you can eat. Like, I had a, I had a, a, a taco salad wrap yesterday that changed my life, you know? The unfortunate thing is I tried to get two, and the one was like, I can only give you a half. I'm like, I'll go sit down and come get another one. Like, give me a full, you know, taco salad wrap, right? <laughs> Lunch lady, right? The Lord tells me to love my enemies. Anyway. You've been at the lunch table, right, or lunch conversations, whatever it is, and you're, you're the only believer, right? And initially, things go well. You're like, I'm, I'm not going to indulge in this petty conversation. Listen, within five minutes, we're going to do, be doing a Bible study on Matthew 25. I'm going to, you know, bring all these non-believers in. It'll be great. And then pretty soon, the conversation takes a massive downward spiral. The boys be talking about boy things, and the girls be talking about girl things, and and all of a sudden, you find yourself laughing at the jokes that you know are inappropriate. All of a sudden, you find yourself not only laughing, but you find yourself participating. And then what non-believers love, you find yourself leading. It is so easy for a Christian to lead in these, in these times because the non-believers are waiting for it. The, the biggest bet during my whole college career was to see who could get me to drink. Okay? Let me make sure first you understand my stance on drinking. Biblically, there's nothing against drinking. Okay? That's our stance here at Matthias. Nothing against, uh, nothing against drinking at all. Drunkenness, clearly a sin. Okay? Now, I personally have been convicted to never drink, and so I haven't. So the biggest bet on my campus was, dude, if you can get Sigma to drink, I mean, the, the pot at one point was like hundreds of dollars. So I, I would just be like sitting in my dorm room, like chilling, doing some homework, and someone would bring in a beer. You know, they'd be like, come on, dude. You know? Listen, I got like a hundred bucks on it. I'll split it with you. Come on, dude. You know? And, and, it would have been very, very easy to indulge. And the thing is, if I would have, it would have been like so epic for all of those relationships because then all of a sudden I would have been leading them. They would have been cheering me on. Yes, we got sick. Well, come on, dude. Like, tell us more. And you know that if you've ever been like the, the jokester amongst the non-believers, they love that because now all of a sudden the thing that they think in your mind that you're judging them, now you're one of them. It's way easier to fall in than to stand. Secondly, <clears throat> our hearts often need to be affirmed by man or at least not ridiculed. In other words, it's easier to talk about behavior, but let's talk about the heart. You find yourself falling in like God is warning his covenant community, the Israelites, but there's this deep longing need in you just to have someone say something awesome about you or to have some semblance of relationship. Often some of the the greatest times that you've fallen with the crowd is when you've been having a tough day. Think about it. Things aren't going well. All of a sudden, some, you know, some things happen in your life that are in disarray, and you're, just, you're needing that pick-me-up, the, the drug of affirmation. And so in that moment, it's way easier just to fall in, receive the affirmation that comes from man, and go on your merry way when those words, at the end of the day, mean nothing. And finally, my favorite, number three, why do we fall in with the many? Because the crowd gives the perception of life. Think about it. Uh, Cardinals game. Have you been? Okay. The crowd gives perception of life. Any person in the playoffs at a Cardinal game looks like they're alive. I mean, their faces are painted. You know, some of them have their shirts off, right? They're like, you know, pouring pretzels on their head. Right? I mean, they're just, they're just getting crazy. They're overwhelmed. If someone just took a picture of the mob, we would all say, these people are alive. And then you sit in a car with some of them on the way home. And you hear the marital fight. You hear the relational strife. The crowd gives the perception of life. You guys understand what I'm saying? And so it's easy to indulge because it seems like it has momentum. Okay. Uh, it made me think of this uh, story. At the end of Jesus' life, here's the crowd. Pilate addressed them once more. This is the crowd that wants Jesus dead from Luke 23, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. It was rallying, man. You know, like they're a part of the execution of a man. And so all of a sudden, even some that, that maybe didn't think Jesus was in the wrong, crucify him, crucify him. 
A third time he said to them, did Pilate, what evil has he done? Like, I, I don't even see this. Pilate even says, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate wanted to let Jesus go, but look at the crowd. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And there the crowd, voices prevailed. The momentum of the crowd gave the perceived image of life. And yet, the one who had the most life in that situation died only to live again, and all of the crowd that sentenced him to death were actually dead in their hearts. You see what I'm saying? The great irony of the crowd is perceived life that is actually dead. When the ones who would submit themselves to the person of Christ deny themselves and take up their cross, those folks are living true life. That's why Stephen, when he's stoned, is in the, the apex of his life as he's taking the stones off his dome and he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is living. So I don't want to, like, turn the page in your parental notebook and say, listen, don't adhere to peer pressure. I just want you to identify for you why you do. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. When you stop and thinking about it for a second, that you would be willing to bend your knee in submission to the crowd because of its momentum and perceived life instead of taking a stand for the thing that you know to be true. Just put in plain terms, it all of a sudden starts to make a whole lot of sense. Okay, let's go on. So much tasty stuff here in this text. He goes on in the middle of verse 2. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Look, this is all about being a man and a woman of integrity. This is what God is helping his covenant community understand. Be a man and a woman of integrity. True to your word. Do what you say. Nor shall, verse 3, really interesting, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. This is one of those weird things. Don't be partial to the poor man. Jesus, don't you love poor people? Right? Like, like, why are you hating on poor people right now? You should be hating on rich people, right? Because if you're partial to rich people, you should say, don't be that. Because if you're partial to them, then, then maybe they'll you know, throw you a kickback on the side. Like, hey, dude. I'll side with you, I'll testify for you, you know, you throw me a, a, few t- you know, a few shekels and we'll call it good. So why is Jesus talking against siding with the poor man here? Because he desires integrity. He's saying if you side with a poor man just out of pity instead of out of justice, it's not filled with integrity. So it doesn't matter whether it's with the rich person or the poor person, stand for integrity, proper justice. Okay, so don't be partial to the poor man. And here we go, something that we all can relate to, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox, right, as all of you guys have, right, have you ever been traveling down the road? Oh, look, there's my enemy and his ox, okay? <laughs> if, you, if you meet your enemy's ox, or maybe we should call it like, if you meet your enemy's vehicle, okay? Um, if you meet your enemy's uh, ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Um, I know there's not many parents in this particular gathering, but how many of you are parents here? Okay, just by raise of hand. Okay, several of us. Five. Um, six. Wonderful. Parents, let me, let me bring you into this a little bit, okay? Uh, there's a season of your life, and maybe you're not there yet. Some of you don't even, like, the thought of having kids makes you vomitous, okay? But there will be a season of your life, especially you females, where, like, all kids are cute, you know? You're just like, ah, oh. and it could be the ugliest baby ever. I mean, you could show up, you could show up in the hospital, and that baby, like, Lord, are you sure this came from your hand? Because I mean, this does not. You'll you'll never say it, right? You'll never communicate it. You'll tell the parents, like, oh, this child is like Simba, you know, they're holding it up like it's the chosen one. And yet in your heart, you're like, this child is straight ugly. Okay? But listen, there's a season where you think every kid's cute. Then you have kids. And when you have kids, all of a sudden, your means of judgment completely change. Because now these kids aren't your kids, right? So now everything has like this ladder of judgment. So what happens in parents sometimes is they will purposefully, knowingly, willfully allow this kid who's become a nuisance to them in their heart. Like in their heart, they're like, this kid, I just, you know, I wish this kid would just you know, figure out life or something, you know, that you just like start gauging your kids. They will purposely and willingly watch their even enemy's kids do something in error so that then they can go back to that parent and be like, um, I just thought I'd tell you what your kid did, 
You know, I watched your kid smack this kid, spit in his face, stomp on his foot, and then pray that he would be saved. You know, like that. I, I just saw your kid do that. And what Jesus is saying, though it seems like an odd assimilation, what Jesus is saying is there's a different way to love your enemies. If you see your enemy's stuff going wayward, bring it back. In other words, it's easy to be in neutral. It's easy to think that just because you're not intentionally harming or intentionally doing something good, that you're sitting in neutral, that you're actually benefiting your enemy. And what Jesus is saying is, loving your enemy is active. It's seeing that, hey, man, my enemy, like his oxen and his donkeys are awry here. His car is not in park, and it's going down the hill. I better help them, okay? More specifically in verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, and you shall rescue uh, him with it. This is all God's gifts in living in community. Love your enemy actively. Wish him well. Do them well. Help them in their situations. Verse 6 kind of puts some summation on this. You shall not pervert the justice due to your, due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, verse 7 says, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, God says. And just in case you're joining us, I want to make sure we're on the same page in one thing in particular that this message from God never changes. He will never acquit the wicked. And just in case you don't understand what I mean by this, we're all born wicked, not the play, okay? Sinful. We're all born that way. Listen, as precious as my little daughter is, as great as her, you know, hair flows in the wind, as much as she looks like Elsa or acts like, you know, all these princesses in the movie, she's straight sinful. It's hard to see sometimes. My boy's very easy to see, very sinful, very depraved, okay? Desperately in need of God. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you are born that way. You're born wicked. God will never acquit the wicked. There will never be a pardon for the wicked. Only in Christ. Only the debt paid by Jesus. Only what Christ did on the cross in an empty tomb can the wicked have freedom because now they're not seen as wicked anymore. They're seen as sons and daughters. I'm just pointing out the fact that this message has never changed. God will not acquit the wicked here and he will not ever acquit the wicked. the wicked. Say that a few times, okay? Verse 8. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. <laughs> Have you ever taken a bribe before? Come on. All right, let's get really, really, really real. Has someone ever paid you to take a test for him? Has someone ever paid you to sit by you in, in class before? I had a friend in college uh, that, that literally paid people by the test, you know? It's like, dude, listen, just sit real close, you know, and kind of leave the open pit so I can, like, get, you know, see the <laughs> peripheral, you know? While on the topic of parents, bribing your children is one of the most dangerous things you can ever do because they will learn that everything is negotiable. And trust me, it's very, very tempting. Like you get to like brush your teeth time, you know? I don't want to brush my teeth. I don't want to brush my teeth. Look, if you just brush your teeth, I will give you a sucker immediately after. Brush your teeth, you know? Like you're just saying things that are nonsensical. Obviously, a sucker would not be helpful, but it's just like, please, dear Lord, do this. Bedtime's the same way, you know? Look, please, just go to sleep. I'm so tired. Stay in there. You know what I mean? Like, here's the lava lamp on. You guys want swords in bed? I don't care. Don't come out, you know? (laughs) And what happens is you teach your kids that everything's negotiable. Everything's negotiable. Everything has a price. What's your price? What bribe tempts you? If I put a $100 bill in front of you, what, what would that cost? What would that pay for? How easily... Would you submit to evil and wickedness just for a bribe? It's interesting, uh, the basis of sin, the Garden of Eden, think about it. It's as if like one of the original bribes is in this interaction between Satan and Adam and Eve. Because ultimately what Satan is promising Adam and Eve are the things that God, he's saying, won't give them. Jesus is bribed by Satan as well, and then Jesus pretty much stomps on the serpent's head with God's word 
and says the Son of Man can't be bought. So if sin enters the world, as it were, as a bribe, and Jesus shows us what to do with bribery, I think the, the walk away for you and I is, may our price never, ever, ever see fruition. Men and women of integrity, that's what God is desiring of his covenant community. Don't take a bride. Finally, verse 9, in this section, I love this verse, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. Look at this. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. May I? Is that cool? May I? Thank you. Um, For every believer in this room that has ever had the audacity To go against a non-believer in a hateful way, I'm just asking you from all of us everywhere, what in the world are you doing? A believer oppressing a non-believer, a sojourner, putting expectations on a non-believer that somehow you think they should have on themselves because now you have that in Christ. Remember your story. You were born wicked, not always knowing Jesus. Remember what life looked like. Remember what you indulged in. Remember what brought you joy. Remember the pursuit of your lust. Remember those things. That's what he's telling his people. Remember what it was like in Egypt. Don't oppress the sojourner because you know what it was like. Why would you continue to, to teach and to preach those who are already burdened in the slavery of their sin? Why would you push them farther down in the name of some Christian piety. You guys see what I'm saying here, somebody? This is where we're at. No one sees what I'm saying, and it's fine because maybe that's the conviction that's overwhelming your own heart. I've seen this in my heart, especially in my self-righteous days. As a high schooler watching my friends go down the tubes, I thought, one by one in my heart judging them to, to hell already instead of praying for God to save them. I had forgotten where I had come from, and maybe you have forgotten that same thing. And so what it's turned to is hatred of the non-believers around you instead of an overwhelming sense of love. All I'm saying is if we started loving non-believers instead of judging them, dear heavens, the difference. And the problem is, as a Christian, we all bear the same name. So the folks who are protesting out there, you know, we hate this, we hate that, we somehow get wrapped in with all that. So let's not fall into that same trap. Amen, somebody, please? Okay. He changes gears here, and I love this change. Stay with me here, verse 10. For six years, you shall sow your land. First of all, any farmers here? Who grew up on on the farm? Okay, we want to recognize you. Those of you who grew up on a farm, could you stand up, okay? We want to applaud the agriculturalist here in the room, okay? Three. Wait, they're, they're, they're they're keeping coming. They're owning it. They're owning it. Yes. Dude, I love farmers. I love farmers. Here's why. Have you ever had sweet corn? If you ever had sweet corn, you love farmers. Okay? You know that this didn't come from like, you know, this didn't, this didn't come from Whole Foods. All right? Don't get me started on Whole Foods. All right? Have you ever had all these sweet corn? It's just as good. Okay? Just as good. Have you ever had a water, watermelon before? Farmers. So thank you for the five of you. Okay? My grandfather was a farmer. I love farmers. Here's the analogy. If you're not a farmer, you're not going to understand. But check this out. For six years you shall sow, sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let it rest? What? Like this isn't farming 101. Now we call it crop rotation, I guess, but, but this seems strange. God's saying on the seventh year, no planting. You're just going to let that field just simmer, you know? You're just going to watch it. You're going to let the nitrogen get down in the soil. Is that right, nitrogen? That's what it does, right, farmers? Come on now, somebody, Right? That sounded smart right there, right? Sounded like I know my farming right there, right? The nitrogen starts working its way up in that soil, okay? And that's what God's saying. Take a year off, don't plant anything, and then all of a sudden what happens is the poor people of yours may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard, okay? So every seventh year, every annual seventh year, no planting. Then he adds this in verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Why? 
And we've already studied the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments and even before. But why the crop resting? This seems odd. This seems strange. Listen. Over and over and over, for God's covenant people, one of the greatest gifts is the remembrance that, listen, guys, you'll really be tempted to get tied to your work. In fact, it comes from the fall. That's one of the curses, especially of that towards men. You'll want to get tied to that field, and you'll see that field as your greatest piece of provision, and you'll see that field as your livelihood, and whatever you know, your case may be, it may not be a field, but whatever it is for you, I'm going to go ahead and put an annual rhythm for our whole culture, our whole covenant community to make them know and believe that if they don't plant in that field that year, I'll still provide. Maybe for you this is another opportunity to be reminded that the onus, the burden is off your shoulders. Maybe part of why we're not existing in the faith of an innocent child is that we've put salvation back on us is that we still think that we have a cross to die on for our own salvation, that we still have a tomb to walk out of so that all the rest of those around us may be saved. Let me just go ahead and release again the burden. It's on him, and he's done a great job. So for this covenant community, let me go ahead and embed this in your rhythm. Every seventh year, no planting. Every seventh day, rest. I hold the universe in my hands, and I hold that field as well. And verse 13, hello, hello. Pay attention to all I have said to you, God says. Do you ever have a grade school teacher that like grabbed your face and looked you in the eye and said, pay attention, you want to smack them? Did that ever happen? So, so here's the problem. Here's the problem. All of us at some point, parent, teacher, friend, someone at, at some point has grabbed our, our chin and pulled us into their face and said, pay attention. And so because of that, you hear the words pay attention and you want to smack somebody, Right? Some of you guys are looking at your neighbor right now like, I don't even know why I'm aggressive, but I need to hit someone, right? <laughs> go ahead. Just go for it right now. Every, no, right? And so because of that, you start taking that out on the Lord. In fact, you just hear the words, pay attention from God, and you're like, seriously? But I want you to understand his heart here. Pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. There has been a tremendous list of rules that we've been studying. My question is, why? Why did God include these? What's his point in all of these? I was brought back to where this covenant started. Father Abraham, right? Anytime I say the name, I just have to sing, you know? We do it all the time here. Father Abraham, many sons, come on. Many sons said Father Abraham, have you heard this? I'm one of them. And so are you. That's all right. Well, Father Abraham is the beginning of this covenant. Some of you guys are still rocking it. You know, turn around, sit down. It's a great song, right? Here, listen, here is the entrance of God's relationship with then Abram. Look at this in Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, this is the entrance, okay? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God doesn't come down and say, hey, I'm God. You want a blanket? Let's sit by the fire, you know? Here's your BFF bracelet. Abram, man, you're such a nice guy. Uh, I'm a really nice God. Listen, why don't we figure this thing out? I've got a whole bunch of people to save. I'd really like to choose all those that will come after you, all your descendants. No, what does he say? He begins the relationship by saying, go. Do you remember Jesus when he calls the disciples, what he says? Come and follow me. There's not like pleasantries and shaking of hands and coddling. It's God saying, it's time now. Let's go. It's God saying, do you trust me? It's God asking that of Abram. It's God asking that of the Israelites through this list of rules. It's God asking you that tonight. Do you trust me? His heart and saying, pay attention isn't to make him some dictator that all of you will follow. His heart is so that you understand that his motive is love. And so by paying attention, you only get to reap the benefits of love all the more. He goes on to talk in verse 14 about one of my favorite topics. Three times in a year, you shall keep a what? A feast. Come on, somebody, right? 
Listen, Thanksgiving, oh my goodness. I just say the word and instantly, like some, you look over and some of you have drool coming down right now, right? I grew up in a family, maybe some of you guys didn't. I grew up in a family where Thanksgiving, I mean, all the cooks rocked it. How many of you guys have lame Thanksgiving meals just so we can, like how, how many of you guys go to Chinese buffets on Thanksgiving, okay? All right. No one there. The farmer raised their hand. Okay, anyway, <laughs> of all people, um, right? I mean, Thanksgiving, I, I hear the word feast, and I just get happy, okay? I mean, that's for me. I mean, I, there, there's some weird combination between tryptophan and mashed potatoes that, like, makes a family in an entire household take an eight-hour coma nap. Have you ever woken up on Thanksgiving, you know, afternoon with the football game on, and all of a sudden, like, grandma's, like, laying her head on your shoulders, and her dentures have fallen out, and you've got, like, your nieces, and you're, like, it's like everyone, because there, there's never enough room on the family couches, is there? And so everyone just packs it in, everyone's super tired, you still got a piece of pumpkin pie in your soul patch, and everyone's just, you know, dead. I mean, it's just complete coma, right? And still loving it. Like, I, I love a feast, so all of a sudden... God introduces, as he ends this section, a rhythm of feasting for his people. So let's check this out. This is going to be interesting. You shall, verse 15, keep the feast of unleavened bread. That don't sound like no feast to me, okay? Feast of unleavened bread? Like feast of non-salted rich crackers, kind of? This is no feast, Okay? As I commanded you, look what verse 15 says, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed, he says. This first feast is the feast of the Passover. Here's what God's doing. What you think is a feast is different than what I call a feast. When I think of a feast, it's self-indulgence. Like the first thing you're thinking on Thanksgiving isn't like, how can I best serve others? It's I got to get me some mashed potatoes, you know, <laughs> a little bit of gravy, right? I mean, that, but what's God saying? My feasts are to remember what I've done for you. So let's start with the Passover. Let's remember that I delivered you from Egypt. Let's remember that you put lamb's blood on the doorposts and that the angel of death rolled on by, killed every firstborn in Egypt so that you could go free, slaves no longer. You celebrate this feast, remember that I've delivered you. That's where God begins, you see? You shall next keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. Now, this is the Feast of Weeks, or what we uh, call often the Pentecost, okay? Well, the whole focus of this feast that happens 50 days after the Passover is that God has provided Okay, it's just after the first grain has been harvested, and so it's a chance for everyone to get together And to celebrate again that God has provided. He's given us food. He's given us sustenance. Here, God has again given us everything that we need. God putting this rhythm. I've delivered you. I provided for you. And then look at this. In the middle of verse 16, you shall keep the feast of (laughs) ingathering. That's really funny, isn't it? Have you ever invited someone to the feast of ingathering at your house? Hey, come on over. We're going to have the feast of ingathering here. This will be awesome. Come on over. And it happens at the end of the year. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, this is what's called the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, okay? It happens at the end of the harvest time. And in the 40 years that the Israelites are traveling around the wilderness, uh, God helps them by teaching them how to build shelter, okay? And so this particular feast is the, the remembrance that God has protected them. Super, super cool. Three times in the year shall all your males, verse 17 says, appear before the Lord. Question is, does this still apply? We do this here at Matthias. Uh, Three times a year, all the guys get together and appear before the Lord. And some of you guys in here are like, I haven't been invited to that, right? That's because we called your maildom in question, okay? I'm just kidding. That was a complete joke. Um, (laughs) Complete joke. No, this doesn't apply anymore, and here's why. The males uh, approach the Lord three times a year as a means of sacrifice, often, okay, being sacrificed on their behalf by the priest or on the Day of Atonement, the high priest. But men, three times a year, it would be in the rhythm representing their family, would bring sacrifice, again, given on behalf through a priest or someone else to make penance for sins. This is the notation 
of this feasting. Here's the three feasts and kind of what they represent, just so we can see the beauty. Unleavened bread, deliverance, feast of weeks, provision, and feast of tabernacles, protection. I don't know about you, but we needed some feasts to celebrate this. Because God is certainly still delivering, and he's certainly still providing, and he's certainly still protecting. Somebody, right? I mean, this is what God does. Like, this is the rhythm. And I pray that just by being here together as a gathering of worshipers, that this is part of what we're learning every single week. God is active, and he is doing these things consistently in your life. That's why he goes against idolatry by saying this next verse in 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Here's what he does. Trying to protect covenant community, he knows that they have been exposed to pagan religions. The Canaanites in particular and other religions that were around believed that because blood was life-giving that they should drink it like vampires, okay? That they would take the sacrifice, drain it of its blood, work with me, and then they would literally drink the blood, think that, thinking that by drinking the blood that, that would make their hemoglobin better, okay? Did I get that right? Unbelievable. That was an amazing moment for all of us right there. Hemoglobin, where did that come from? I've always wanted to say that in a sermon, right? He says here, connecting blood and unleavened bread, because often people couldn't stomach just drinking the blood, so they would put the blood in bread, in unleavened bread, to make one big, like, ketchup cracker, okay? Modern-day pizza, okay? (laughs) And so what happened is, God is saying, we're not like these people. Do not do this. I know it will be your propensity because it's what you've been around, but do not do this. He goes on to add to this thought, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Let me explain this. Here's what happens briefly. Is pagan religions would shave off a piece of the fat, and they would use it the next day for all kinds of things. But a big part of the sacrifice is that it was holistic. So by keeping a piece of the fat, then what you're doing is you're saying, well, I know what God's called me to sacrifice, but I kind of want to make my own rules and regulations to the sacrifice. And God's saying, that's not how I roll. Verse 19, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And this certainly goes against many pagan religions, especially of the time, who brought their gods some of the last pieces of what they had. And God's like, I'm not, God, I'm not one of those lowercase gods. I'm real. And I'm deserved of your first fruits. And then finally, here's where we began. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And all of us collectively are, amen. This is a great command, right? I'm never, ever, God, I promise. Some of you guys are already making this covenant with God. God, I promise you, I will never take a young goat and boil it in its mother's milk, you know? Lord, please receive me, right? Let me explain the significance, okay? Uh, A mother's milk, as you can imagine, is a massive sign of life and even for pagan religions, fertility. So what pagan religions would do is they would take mama's milk, they would boil young, the young in it as a sign of fertility, and then they would take that sacrifice, and even the milk as it were, and they would like put it in the soil for a better crop. They would drink it for more fertile, you know, pieces of themselves, okay? There were all kinds of facets of this idolatry that God is saying, that's not how we function. Don't go with the many. There's a different way is what he's saying. We'll be moving on next week from lists of rules and laws. But at the end of this, isn't there something in you that's like, why in the world are all these here? And why is it beneficial for us to study these? Here's why. I went to Table Rock like two weeks ago. You guys been? In general, I'm not like a huge fan of Branson. It has Lambert's, which is great. Um, outside of that, you know, I, I could give or, give or take. But I'd never been to Table Rock. Beautiful lake. You can see through it. It's, you know, it was really, really cool. I mean, I felt like I was like in 
Puerto Rico or something, just like looking through the water. I've never even been there. I don't know. Anyway, I just, I felt like, felt like I was in a nice, luxurious place, you know? And then they have this place where you can uh, jump off of a cliff. Have you guys seen this? Okay. And so, of course, I mean, I'm crazy. And, and so I was like, hey, let's do this. And so me and my sister go. And first of all, we're watching children really struggle up getting up these rocks. So I'm already having a battle. Like, can I get up these rocks? Like, am I, am I capable of doing this, right? And then, like, one kid goes down, and they're, like, bleeding. So I'm, all of a sudden, there's blood involved. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, this is hardcore, you know, and I'm not sure if I can make it, but all right. And so I'm with my sister, and I'm kind of hoisting her up in front of me, you know, and, and I know that may seem weird, but I was just trying to help her, okay? And, and, and so I, I, I get up to the top of this rock, and now it's a whole new ball game, right? Because this, I mean, this thing was probably 600 feet high, okay? So plus or minus, plus or minus, it was really high, Right? And, and you're having to wrestle with all kinds of new realities, like, okay, what, we, I have a picture of this exact moment. Here's me and my sister, true story. That's me on the left, just in case. Um, <laughs> so my mom took this to even add a, another element, right? So she's there, and I'm like looking down, and I'm like, okay, okay. So I've made it up this rock. Okay, worst case scenario, I belly flop, my flesh comes off my face, but at least I have my life jacket, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> So maybe I'll like a bobber, I'll like, you know, swing around, and I'll be okay, you know. So it's it, like this very, very simple moment gets super, super complicated really fast, that's what I'm saying. And then all of a sudden I like looked at my sister and I was like, ah, oh, you know, everyone's watching us. I mean, we're watching like four-year-olds just like do like barrel rolls into the water, you know. And so then we jump, okay, true story, check this out. Okay, so that, I'm not sure what my move is there. Um, <laughs> It's like open pit, you know, hope for the best. It's like my prayer posture. It's my worship posture, you know, I go in. And my sister's diving. She's just going for it, you know. Um, okay, get, get that off, please. Um, it's really, really complicated to get to that point. So many things that could have went wrong. So many things that I was computing in my mind. And then I'm back to faith like a child. It's like there's no factors at all. The whole point of rules and regulations that God gives his covenant community isn't for one second that they would focus on goats and milk. It's so they would ask themselves the question that will be, has been, and is of you asked of every person under God's covenant community under this covenant, the old and the new covenant in Christ. And that question is, do you trust me? The focus isn't on the rules. The question is, do you trust me? And if you do, then all of those things come along with it. That was the question of the disciples. Do you trust me? Come and follow me. That was the question of Paul and certainly the question of Timothy. It was of David as well. Do you trust me? And my friends, it's the question for you. Those of you that have come in here and your faith has gotten so convoluted because of your own sin, lack of repentance, or some kind of systematic theology that you grew up in that embedded in your mind workspace righteousness, let me kick that crap out of your head right now. We cannot, by any means of our own, approach God with something in our hands that will appease Him. We are only seen as sons and daughters through his son Jesus. Any other gospel, the scripture says, is no gospel at all. And so the question for you and I consistently in cancer, in divorce, in relational strife, in the worst times of your life, in the greatest times, in the deepest, darkest sorrow and in tremendous joy, the question is, do you trust him? Is he different than the lowercase gods? Is he separated from all the other religions? Has he proven himself in your life and the lives around you to be a promise keeper and a covenant keeper? And if he has, then why would you ever question him? Then why would we ever, as believers, walk away thinking somehow that we can muster our way through it again? 
instead of trusting that in all things and in every way that he'll be glorified in our life no matter what that means for us. I was talking with a, a good friend. Um, we have several folks here who are journeying through cancer. Talking with a good friend. And here, here are my words. Okay? This is a, mostly a situation you guys don't know about here in our body. And I just said, if you die because of cancer, I said, so what? And you're like, Mark, that's harsh. But it's true. No, it's not harsh at all. It's real. If my flesh dies, I am with him forever. If everything that I have leaves me, if my family walks away, and I, I mean my family has my heart, I just see my kids, I hold them up here after the first service, and I just start crying. I love my kids, but if they abandon me, he will not, ever. Your greatest friends, your greatest relationships, let me guarantee you, there are going to be some that are close to you now that will turn their back on you. What do you got in that moment? If everything else goes, the one who is trustworthy because of who he is, not because you are trustworthy, is staying by your side, is with you. Is somebody with me tonight? Come on. This is the reality of our God. So the question of do you trust me looms in the balance. And some of you are basing that answer on your circumstances and not on the proven track record of an eternal God who has only shown himself as trustworthy. So as for me and my house, like a kid again, I just want to believe that he's enough, that he's good, that he loves me, that he's about his glory, and that whatever that means for me, I'm okay with. Like a little kid, I just want to embrace Christ like the first time. Like a little kid, I just want to worship Christ like I don't care about who's looking. Like a little kid, I want to forget the crowd and just stand, even if I have to stand alone. Like a little kid, I just want to celebrate the works of God and boast in what he's doing. Like a little kid, I want to reach my arms up to a parent who will never deny me, and I want to live in that embrace that is so real and so not cliche. As a little kid, church, tonight, I just want to say, listen, my flesh is weak, God, but I trust you. Like everything in me, I know we'll try to tear that trust away, but God, please increase my faith. God, grow my trust. I know it will be a struggle, but that's where I'm at, God. And I'm asking you, church, would you be willing to pray that prayer, God, increase my faith. God, build my trust. God, give me again tonight the innocent, naive, almost trust of a kid. And I'm telling you, if that happens, we will worship like that. We will live like that. The naivety will be a fuel, my friends, to a Christ-centered life that cares not about the crowd and cares more about his glory. So let's stand together. Father, for my friends in this room tonight who are struggling to know which way is up, who have lost confidence in your ability, who have questioned your motive, and who have certainly challenged your will, for those friends in here, I pray that you would give them again the heart of a child. That you would give them a, a faith that is so innocent, so real, so alive, so unburdened, so unhindered. I pray that that happens literally right, right now in this moment. I pray that their heart feels free, that their burdens feel released, that their sins they know are forgiven and that God, they can just be exactly who they are, a son and daughter of you, so free them. And God, for my friends in here who have never called on your name, who have never trusted you, will you show them by process of elimination that everything else will fail and fall? And there is one who will stand forever. God, will you please grow our trust 
as a church, as brothers and sisters, do that in our work, in our heart here tonight, Lord God. Please, Father. Hey, everybody look at me real quick. Listen, let's worship right now like we're kids who have been freed, innocent, naive, trusting. No questions about who he is. Just saying, God, you are exactly who you say that are. Anyone want to worship like that tonight? Come on now. Let's let our hearts go. Let's regain our innocence again. And let's call on the majesty of God. Let's worship that God tonight. Come on.